OCI is the single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. Do more and spend less, like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic. Take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash wallstreet. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, and welcome to Opus Energy Insights with Barron's Live. I'm Luca Powell, Senior Research Analyst of Energy and Feedstocks here at Chemical Market Analytics. My guests today are Steve Lewandowski, Senior Vice President of Olefins Research, and Nick Baffiata, Senior Vice President of Plastics Research. Welcome to the program. I'd like to remind our audience to submit any questions you may have in the Q&A. And if we don't get around to answering your question, we'll be sure to be in touch over email. Before we begin, I would like to spend just a little bit of time setting the stage, especially because when it comes to electric vehicles, they seem to be everywhere these days. They're commonly known as EVs, and while it might seem like they are the latest innovation in personal mobility, it may surprise you to know that the first EV was actually introduced prior to the turn of the 20th century in 1890. However, when Ford introduced the Model T in 1908 for a third of the cost, um, for a third of the cost, they fell very quickly out of favor. Today, electric vehicles have closed the gaps of both purchase cost and practical range, leading to increasing sales and enhanced penetration into the global vehicle fleet. This increased adoption has prompted many forecasters to reassess the pace of vehicle fleet electrification. This is because predicting the penetration rate of electric vehicles is core to the evaluation of the energy transition. Since a significant portion of oil demand is still used to satisfy the fuel demands of traditional vehicles. But the energy transition isn't just about electric vehicles and understanding the evolution of the vehicle fleet. It's also about the continued adoption of renewable sources of power with the overall aim of reducing carbon emissions and limiting the global temperature increase by 2100. With the help of Rystad Energy, we've examined the various scenarios of temperature increases in degrees Celsius, but there's two that we tend to analyze to understand the ultimate impacts to consumers, the 2.2 and the 1.9 degree cases. In the 1.9 degree case, oil demand falls from over 100 million barrels per day in 2026 to 61 million barrels per day by 2050. On the other hand, for comparison, a 2.2 degree increase is consistent with a status quo type of scenario where there is limited coordination between countries to decarbonize, but overall these efforts result in only a limited decline of oil demand to 94 million barrels per day by 2050. Therefore, to achieve the decline in, in overall oil demand as specified in the 1.9 degree case, an aggressive penetration of electric vehicles into the overall global vehicle fleet must be assumed. As such, the share of electric vehicles relative to the overall vehicle fleet grows from slightly above 1% today to just under 20% by 2030 and to roughly two thirds of all vehicles on the road by 2050. So if the world's vehicle fleet does indeed evolve towards this level of electrification, there will certainly be both intended and unintended consequences. The obvious intended consequence will be an increased need for electricity generation 
as well as the diminished need for traditional hydrocarbons. Well, today we're here to talk about the unintended consequences of this transition and why the electric vehicle boom could lead to higher prices for everyday items. So we've now set the stage and let's get into it. Steve, I think it makes sense to start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about the basics of oil refining and how those refiners expect to cope in a world that will demand less of the products they make? Yeah, great. Thanks. Thanks, Luca. So, yeah, really refining is quite important in the petrochemical space. And, and first off, really around the world, there's about 700 refining uh, sites that exist to, to convert oil into fuels products. And of these 700 sites, the capacity and configuration of them are quite different. Really, no two are, are alike. Generally, what they do is they input oil and some other things like hydrogen, maybe butanes for gasoline blending, methanol and ethanol to create gasoline. Uh, and generally, they all make three products, gasoline, kerosene jet fuel for, for aviation, and diesel fuel. Uh, now, the different regions of the world have different ratios of these productions, so it becomes important where you're at and, and how you're configured and how much oil you run. Uh, then they also make some other products. Um, you know, they make some fuel gas, they make some propane, uh, other butanes that they could be long, some naphtha to feed into petrochemicals, propylene, of course, petrochemicals, the aromatics come out of refining, uh, and then the heavier end of the barrel, whether that's bunker fuel or asphalt, and then even sulfur to some extent, which we talk a lot about. Ultimately, the refiners really uh, focus on two main objectives, which really drive to the one key, which is profits and profitability. So the first thing they look at is really minimizing input costs. So that is the oil and the cost of the oil that they run, as well as any of the other variable costs um, to convert that oil into the products that they require. The second is really to you know, make the mix of the highest value products they can, whether that's gasoline, jet and diesel, and maybe to some extent, some of those co-products I mentioned. Uh, but these price relationships change seasonally. So sometimes the higher value product will be gasoline, sometimes jet, and sometimes CISO. So the refining systems have to be quite flexible to adapt uh, to these changing price dynamics uh, on the end product slate. So the ultimate objective uh, of you know, moving these two pieces around is really about the highest margins, utilizing the refining assets the best they can, and really at the end of the day, the profits rule, right? Minimize cost and maximize profits. Sometimes, though, the highest value products, often petrochemicals like propylene and aromatics, uh, you know, have a higher cost to produce. So they don't always get produced. So it's an always a balance between the refiner on whether I should make one stream or another looking at the cost structure versus the value across the whole system. So I guess regardless of the energy transition pathway, the world will still demand oil just less of it than today. But not all oil is created equal. Could you tell us a little bit about the nuances of this market? Yeah, indeed, you know, um, oil demand definitely will drop as we see uh, mobility drop, the demand for gasoline and diesel, maybe to some extent jet fuel. And all oil is not created equal. Uh, it's kind of like fingerprints or snowflakes, right? Oil is quite different. And even in the same oil well, day to day, that product isn't exactly the same. There's nuances and ultimately refining folks have to manage um, through that. So really depending on the degree scenario uh, increase that we're looking at, as you mentioned earlier, Luca, 
Um, you know, this really isn't a today issue per se on how the assets are run. It's more of an issue to the end of this decade and into the 30s as uh, EV is adapted more and more and those fuel demands change. So it is an issue and an opportunity, uh, but planning today really is critical uh, on how they manage their investment portfolio through the refinery. So really on paper, you know, as we have less demand for oil and less demand for fuels products, um, you know, we'll, we'll consume less and refinings will run less. So in theory, there should be plenty of steel on the ground to put oil in and make stuff. Uh, the problem is, is it really the right steel? Because that product mix is going to change. Less gasoline, less diesel, more jet. How do you manage through that? So is it really the right steel in the right place? And then the second question really is, is it really the right oil? Because as I said, all oil is different and they have different selectivity and uh, different yields. And when you really look at an oil barrel, the, you know, the only products that we talked about, gasoline, jet and diesel, jet and diesel are in the raw oil. Not enough to service all the demand, uh, but there is oil, um, jet and diesel in, in the crude oil. Some of it has to be treated to meet product quality and specifications to go to the market. But really, most of the oil goes to what we deem as intermediates. Intermediates that need future uh, or additional processing to, to produce gasoline blend components or diesel components or kerosene components. Some of these could be isomerization units to take light naphtha and, and boost the octane uh, for better gasoline blending, reforming, so taking the naphtha that you have in the crude and creating gasoline, fluid catalytic cracking, taking the heavier ends of the barrel to make gasoline and diesel. Uh, and then there's even upgraders at the bottom of the barrel, cokers and LC fining are two key ones, which take really the heavy part and um, create lighter intermediates that then go again within within the refinery. So that is uh, that is quite critical. So to put it really in per, into perspective, you know, in 2023, about 15% of the liquids coming out of the ground is going into petrochemicals, whether that is is propylene. Uh, aromatics or as um, feedstocks for uh, petrochemical assets. And we could anticipate this growing to 25 to 30%, uh, really depending on what scenario we're looking at, because we know pet chems in our view will continue to grow. So as long as we have growth in pet chems and maybe a decreasing fuel demand and oil demand, by definition, the, the percent going to petrochemicals is going to increase. That's super interesting. So I guess at this stage, we've spoken a lot about fuels, but what else do refineries make? Yeah, refining definitely do make some petrochemicals today, uh, different levels, different sites, as they're all different. Uh, so propylene is one of the key products made out of FCCs, as I mentioned earlier, fluid catalytic cracking units. But as gasoline demand goes down, uh, how we run those units is going to change. We may run them less. And we might be starved a bit for propylene as we look at uh, our forecast. Areas can go a, a few different ways. We know we may uh, have less gasoline demand, but there's flexibility to recover more aromatics out of the out of the reformate that's converted from the naphtha. And maybe we'll have more aromatics, but we may be starved for naphtha, and maybe those units can't run as hard. So we could have challenges on naphtha supply. But what it really is going to boil down to is these other intermediates, really the feedstocks. What's going to happen to naphtha? Are we going to have sufficient naphtha to service uh, the steam crackers, enough propane to service 
um, the propane to hydro units to make the ethylene and propylene, which are the biggest building blocks in the petrochemical space. So would you say that's the only source of growth from liquids to bond? Yeah, I think when we look at refining, it's really the only place we see liquids growing is going to be in the petrochemicals. If all these uh, transition policies take hold and we evolve as fast as we think. So all these refineries geared toward fuels are going to have to reassess and think about, do I make more pet cams or do I make more feedstocks? And how do I do that? And how do I get from here to there? And the view is because today, you know, we're such a small percentage of those yields. And as we grow, we're going to have to carry more of the cost of oil production, oil movement, oil processing, et cetera, which probably will increase the feedstock cost and the pet cam assets and really create some challenges as we move further and further into this transition. So, Nick, I think you might be able to answer this. Is this, does the higher prices fall onto the consumer? So from what it sounds like, the consumer will be paying higher prices as these costs go up. Well, look, uh, they usually do. You know, it's either through direct or indirect means. Uh, on a direct basis, you see this by uh, uh, sellers simply raising the price of their finished goods enough to cover the incremental raw material prices and uh, higher production costs. And uh, on an indirect basis, we might see something like uh, increased taxes designed to cover subsidies that might be uh, developed to support this transition. So, yes, I think that will fall on the consumer. Is there any way to avoid this <laughs> cost impact to consumers on plastics well, by using would... alternative feedstocks? Well, that would be nice, but it's probably not likely, at least based <laughs> on what we see today. So if you think about it, commodity plastics such as polyethylene and polypropylene have historically been produced with relatively low cost uh, fossil based feedstocks. And, and they've always delivered a very uh, strong or strong performance characteristics at very favorable values. You know, they've really been a, a great bang for the buck for the consumer. But today, the economics that we see associated with these alternative technologies uh, combined with the market dynamics to real push for these these products, uh, especially associated with mechanically recycled materials, chemically recycled materials, or even uh, renewable feedstocks. Uh, typically, what we're seeing is that, that these products result in a resin price that could be two to three times the price of uh, the standard or traditional virgin resin products. So we do believe this premium that you're seeing today uh, will decline over time but it will remain in place. It's, it's somewhat of so it becomes somewhat of a specialty product and they will continue, uh, continue to carry premium. Sorry. So it's kind of like a double whammy then higher cost for traditional feedstocks, yeah. but also higher cost for recycled and bio-based feedstocks. It, it, it really is. Uh, that said up to this point, they generally had an option. They've had an option to purchase products that are produced with the uh, recycled or bio-based products, which, as I mentioned, they've always carried a premium or do carry a premium, or they could purchase the traditionally-based, fossil-based materials. Now, uh, as a result of that, we've seen some kind of niche markets develop, uh, essentially on the East Coast and the West Coast. But the option to purchase the traditionally-based uh, products, we think, will diminish as a corporate policy and government legislation mandate 
recycle minimum products or bio-based products. So in addition to that, if we see a carbon tax implemented, it'll also raise the price of the traditionally produced fossil-based resins, but probably not as high as some of these alternative materials, which actually have a, a, a higher carbon footprint. So I guess brand owners are a critical piece of this puzzle. Could you tell us a little bit about how these brand owners are responding to this price environment they're facing? Sure, we're seeing we're seeing that quite a bit. In fact, we're seeing probably the most activity around packaging related materials. But I want to put this in perspective. Uh, it should be noted that packaging typically represents a relatively small part of the overall product uh, product cost, maybe five to fifteen percent. That's depending on the product. But we are seeing material shifts occur today away from plastics in order for these, these companies to respond to consumers' growing concerns, environmental concerns, and also to Wall Street and investment communities uh, increasing scrutiny of uh, ESG scores. Uh, for example, we're seeing uh, Amazon move its packaging from, from plastics to paper. Now, while Amazon and others are doing this in part because uh, paper is uh, more easily recycled and certainly at higher rates, but it can be more expensive and it's arguably less environmentally friendly. So with, with that in mind, um, would you say aluminum or aluminum for, <laughs> for you guys? Um, would you say that's an alternative material that can replace plastics? Absolutely, I would. And certainly in certain applications, it is happening now. Uh, for example, we're seeing a shift in the cup segment away from plastics and towards aluminum, you know, in part because aluminum is supported by very high collection rates and really excellent uh, recycling qualities, uh, and, and also a trend towards reusable cups, which are more uh, uh, amenable towards aluminum. Now, that said, we could see a reverse in this trend if and when uh, carbon emission taxes are applied and alternative materials such as paper and aluminum are assessed on what we would call a full life cycle basis. And that and, and you, you could see that differential decrease and change. So is it even feasible to have such a large scale replacement of these materials, especially within the context of government policies um, changing to reduce plastic use kind of globally? Well, we believe that policy will certainly be a driver in this transition. But unfortunately, we're seeing a major disconnect develop between brand owner commitments uh, relative to producing recycled content and or bio-based products uh, that aren't likely to be achieved based on today's limited supply of what I would call high quality or fit for purpose uh, recycled or bio-based materials. Uh, this disconnect could result in a uh, credibility issue for the industry or for, for brand owners um, uh, as, as, as these recycled uh, content minimums are, are legislated. And that would include uh, uh, taxes for unrecycled or uh, fossil-based virgin resins. So what we really so need here, what we really need here, Luca, is a full yeah. life cycle analysis. And it's critical to making the right material choices uh, for the public and for the brand owner. I'm gonna give you uh, an example here. Uh, McKinsey just released a very high profile study last year that 
analyze the overall greenhouse gas emissions impact of plastics against 14 uh, commonly referenced alternatives. And as it turns out, the plastics uh, score was actually lower than that of 13 of the 14 alternatives. Uh, there also probably needs to be some discussion societal trade-offs uh, as, we, as we move to these transitions. For example, is it uh, more desirable uh, to continue drilling for the, uh, the, the oil and natural gas necessary to produce these, the feedstocks to produce traditional uh, plastics? Or is it better to do the mining, where you mentioned aluminum, uh, to produce, to develop the material necessary to, to produce the aluminum alternatives? Um, and, and another example might be for the society, is it is it more desirable to shift corn and sugarcane away from the uh, food supply to produce feedstocks for, for plastics? So these are very difficult questions that'll have to be answered. Uh, not an easy equation here, all being considered. Yeah, definitely. So different moving parts you can touch on this um what what are the short-term implications or what should we be doing now steve is that for you yeah i kind of missed the you, you kind of went uh i guess if the question is why why is the interest today in this topic yeah. when you know transition is still you know maybe five to to ten years out and it really will kick in after that you know, uncertainty is not good for for anyone in our industry because a lot of things we do have long-term time horizons. Namely, how do I design things? How do I get approval for things? And then how do I execute a, a project and the timing to install things? You know, I'll take maybe six to, to seven years, maybe even longer, depending on the region of the world. So today we're having to make decisions because we know there's going to be a turnaround on a major unit in a refinery coming up and maybe I have to make some adjustments and I have to plan for that in harmonization with my outage. But even on the broader scheme, you know, the uncertainty for the refiners on what does the fuel system look like and how do I invest? Do I invest today uh, for a 1.9 case or a lower increase case? Uh, and then all of a sudden we're at a 2.2, a higher case where I still need all that fuel because we haven't adapted as quick, the market hasn't accepted, technology hasn't caught up for or whatever reason. And it's really, you know, a nerve wracking process for those in the space because you're looking at, you know, five to six years to decide and to build. And once you're running, these projects normally have somewhere between 15 and 20 year life to get a payout. And if all of a sudden your margins are going to collapse because the, the view of the market hasn't played out the way we thought, you know, you're you're throwing money uh, at a at a bad outcome because the market's just going to move differently. So uncertainty is really a challenge, and that's why I think in the industry, whether you're a refiner or a pet chem player, you need some clarity. And really, for the pet chem guys, we're the most nervous because in one scenario, at a bigger increase in temperature, we probably will have plenty of supply in feedstocks. But to the contrary, if we are more aggressive on the de degree increase we'll have more and more challenges in feedstocks and even uh, petrochemical production out of the refinery itself. So a really a nervous time without the clarity. 
And Nick, do you see any short-term actions that are being taken or should be taken? A absolutely. We're, we are seeing a lot of activity uh, uh, today with respect to particularly the recycling that will have an impact on plastics demand and, and ultimately on feedstock demand. Uh, as a result uh, of, of this activity, we are seeing some interesting what I would call partnerships developing to sort of tackle this problem. A couple of examples here, one of which is uh, Nova Chemical, which is a major producer of polyethylene, uh, partnering with uh, Novalex, no relation there, but uh, Novalex is a major uh, producer of, uh, of packaging materials. And they're working together to, for, for Novalex to supply uh, these, these uh, bags that they've recovered, plastic bags, et cetera, uh, back to Nova to produce uh, recycled polyethylene, which we call PCR, post-consumer recycle. And their goal is to produce about 100 million tons of this material, 100 million pounds, excuse me, of this material by 2026. And that sounds like a lot, but you have to bear in mind that the polyethylene market domestically in the U.S. is about 12 and a half million tons. But it's a start. But there's another interesting example I'd like to talk about, and that's happening right here in Houston uh, from where I'm uh, speaking today. And that's this, um, that's this collaboration uh, with uh, ExxonMobil, uh, Lionel Bazell, and some others that have formed a collaboration really with the, with the city of Houston to form what they're calling the Houston Recycling uh, uh, Collaboration. And this, this is a sort of a unique collaboration between government, industry, and the community to uh, increase Houston's recycling rates and to help establish Houston as a leader in the sort of development and proliferation of uh, mechanical and chemical recycling. So there are things happening. Virtually every major uh, plastics producer has a, uh, a plastics uh, 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 recycling program. They've got net zero targets, et cetera. So we are seeing actions being taken today to move towards this, uh, this end goal, which will ultimately have some limitations on plastic demand growth and, and uh, feedstocks. Thanks, Nick. That's definitely encouraging. And I think it's always good to wrap up on a somewhat positive note. Um, so we've got a lot of questions coming in from the audience. Um, I think the one, one to start with maybe, I think for you, Nick, um, this is coming from Robert. And essentially he's asking about how it, the, I guess, regional differences in the movement in this transition. And, and well, if you see any differences on that, on that basis. Yes, we are seeing differences. I would say that this is a global movement that uh, especially when, given the fact that many of these companies are uh, international companies and operate globally, uh, the brand owners as well as the producers. But it's also fair to say that Europe is well ahead, uh, both from a, uh, in terms of actions, uh, policy, et cetera, of the rest of the world. Now, that being said, I do see uh, movement in, in other key regions uh, we are behind uh, Europe here, but we're moving that direction. So, yes. If it's a question on energy transition, I mean, what we know is I think China has adapted a pretty aggressive replacement of automobiles into EVs. They're really trying to clear up, uh, you know, clear up the atmosphere around the, the major cities. So they seem to be a bit more aggressive on that EV from internal combustion engine transfer. But as Nick said, this is a global event and 
most refining products really move easily across uh, the ocean. And if you got the ships, you can move the products. So we look at it on a global basis, realizing, yeah, China may be a bit more aggressive. They have a lot of battery materials. They have a lot of incentive to make that happen. They have a lot of technology in the works. You know, Europe's moving a bit aggressively uh, on that front. But then we hear different stories in North America. You know, the automakers are losing a lot of money per car. The, the inventories are stockpiling on EV in general. So is that is that energy transition from a mobility perspective uh, moving quite as as fast as people think? You know, time will tell. And the consumer ultimately will, will probably rule in, in how this plays out. Will they will they spend the extra money? Will they go for what is perceived today as a less convenient alternative? Uh, you know, and how does that work tomorrow as technology continues to improve and performance continues to improve? And we have a question from Pablo. Um, he's asking, with the opportunities for lightweighting electric vehicles, is that a net positive or a neutral effect on plastics demand, would you say? Well, we think it's a net positive for plastics demand. Uh, they're looking to lightweight, as you mentioned. There's many alternatives here. Uh, for example, uh, uh, all the under, hood, under the hood parts, uh, multiple multiple components of the of the automobile are going to be lighter and have to be replaced with plastic so we see that as a net positive i mean for some molecules it's going to be more of a challenge as nick said under the hood so hoses and rubbers you know anything that goes with with heat we probably will have less demand because the electric motor isn't quite the same but we also understand these cars are heavier today and the the tire wear will probably increase and we may need more replacement tires than we've had in the past. So we're we're looking at the dynamics on both ends, you know, the redesign versus the weight and, and the usage and wear and tear on the parts that you do have. It's, you know, some plastic will improve, some will, will move um, in a different direction. Yeah, but I'd like to make the point though, that regardless of this transition and regardless of some of the issues that are facing plastic, we continue to see uh, demand growth and we continue to anticipate uh, demand growth for plastics uh, globally long term and we here at cma have developed multiple cases uh, uh, different scenarios uh, with uh, uh, the uh, sort of uh, development of, uh, of uh, some of these uh, uh, transitions occurring more quickly in some cases than others but the bottom line even in our base case we see no peak plastics demand in our more aggressive green case, we see sort of a leveling off, not quite a plateauing of plastics demand, but we continue to see growth. Polyethylene, for example, is the most ubiquitous plastic on the planet. It's used in so many applications. Uh, we just don't see that uh, going away. So continued growth. Yeah, I think that's a critical, uh, critical point because you know, we always talk about, can we collect it better? Can we contain waste, waste material better? Because there's clever people that are going to figure out how to reuse it and you know, re-inject that into the petrochemical cycle in some form or fashion. And as Nick said, McKinsey's study showed that this has a much better carbon footprint from a plastic perspective than other materials. We just have one, one spot in this system that's giving us um, a, a bit of a bad, bad press, and that's how we manage the waste. But there's the Alliance to End Plastic Waste that's really trying to work this to help 
you know, improve that part of the chain so that all the other benefits that we receive from plastic and, and synthetic materials really gets their day. I think we can probably fit in one more question. And I guess while we're on the, on the discussion of plastic waste, um, what are the challenges related to recycling technology and infrastructure required for this larger scale circularity? I know it's quite a loaded question, but. Well, uh, really what we see here, is it's, it's an interesting uh, sort of situation that's developed. We think if you look at it from an environmental standpoint, a carbon footprint standpoint, uh, mechanical recycling is really uh, the, the, the most desirable option. It, uh, it uh, produces uh, uh, plastic uh, at, at, at the lower price and at the lower uh, carbon footprint. That said, uh, it's got limited applications and limited supply right now. Uh, on the other hand, we're looking at the development of chemical recycling, molecular re recycling, another term for it, that is uh, proven or, or is, is, is proven to, in, in smaller scale applications but we haven't really seen it develop in terms of scale to the necessary levels that it needs to be to really be a significant, uh, to make a significant impact on supply. And we see that changing. There's a lot of investment occurring there. It's a great way to reduce plastics waste from the, uh, from the environment. But at this point, it, uh, it's not overly significant in terms of the uh, 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 replacement plastic pellets that it produces. And I think an important aspect of this um, advanced recycling or chemical recycling is really the quality of the material that you get after you run through this process. And what we're seeing today, at least with the technology that uh, are allowing folks to see their data, is just like there's you know no two oils that are the same. It seems like this material is not quite similar from process to process. And it has a wide range of quality where it may have to go into a refinery to clean it up before it can go back into pet chem. So still a lot of, a lot of work to be done to really get around our arms around those economics and the utility, uh, you know, of that piece of technology to, to eliminate the, the landfills that we see. But there's a lot of attention, to, attention get being given to the issue. Money is being spent. As Steve mentioned, a lot of clever people working on this. So we do see movement. We are, we're optimistic. That's always good to know. We can probably do another question. We just have so many interesting ones that I don't want to miss any out. Um, another good one that we got from John is with the slowdown in electric vehicles adoption, at least in the US, um, and the constrained refining capacity, Earlier this year, we saw a very tight gasoline market with crack spreads reaching $60 a barrel. How will the this tight fuel market affect migration from fuels? Yeah, I, I think I think what's happened over the course of the last few years, we've rationalized quite a bit of refining capacity in North America, some because of decisions made to shut things down, some because they had an industrial accident and chose not to repair and just left the assets down. But as I said, oil, gasoline, jet move readily from continent to continent. And on a global basis, normally, you know, the history has been we need about 500,000 barrels a day of incremental refining capacity to service demand growth. 
Um, we think they're going to add over the course of the next couple of years, 2 million barrels a day per year. So we think, you know, the, the snugness in refining capacity is going to go away and these refineries will optimize to right, run the right crude through the right steel to make the product slate that the market needs. And we probably will get closer to historical crack spreads across the board as opposed to seeing these premiums caused by anomalies in, you know, some short term issues. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Steve and Nick. That was super interesting and we've covered a lot so much today. Um, just a reminder, we will try and get back to everyone um, whose questions we didn't answer. There were so many brilliant ones. Um, so yeah, thank you both, Nick and Steve. Thanks, Luca. Thank you. So this is all the time that we have. Thank you very much to our audience for tuning in. Please join Barron's Live again on Monday. Barron's Senior Managing Editor, Lauren R. Rublin, and Deputy Editor, Ben Livinson will speak with Barry Knapp, Managing Partner of Ironside's Macroeconomics, on the outlook for financial markets, industry sectors, and individual stocks. So be sure to attend that one. That sounds super interesting. Thank you all for listening. Stay well and have a lovely weekend.